Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What's good, everybody? Welcome into a live edition of the Coast to Coast podcast here on InsideCarolina.com. I am Joey Powell. We are brought to you by Johnny T-Shirt and johnnytshirt.com. All right, I'm glad everybody's here. Appreciate you making time for us tonight. Uh, As always with us, Sean Moran and Sherelle McMillan. We haven't done a live one of these in quite some time and uh, apologize for the scheduling uh, issues last night. We usually do these on a Sunday evening recorded that they hit your uh, podcast and YouTube feeds late Sunday night, early on Monday. I had something come up uh, family related, so wasn't able to get it done. So I apologize for the the, the curveball, but appreciate everybody kind of rolling with us and still being here tonight. Uh, if you have not yet, you can still get on in here in the chat. We'll try to monitor that as best we can. But you know the drill. Inside Carolina's Coast to Coast podcast, Sherelle and Sean uh, join me. We talk UNC basketball. We talk, uh, you know, recruiting a little bit. Um, but basically, uh, it's it's really just uh, we want to hit all the news that's fit to discuss with uh, with UNC basketball. So first things first, I would be remiss if we didn't discuss the news that came out today of uh, one of UNC's best post players of all time passing away, Eric Montross. Uh, succumbing to cancer yesterday at 52 years old. Um, certainly, you know, everybody remembers Eric as a player. Uh, we're probably the most famous guy to wear double zero at UNC. Um, he was also a color guy for the radio network for quite some time. I'm sure that Jones and Adam will have a lot of great things to say on the network, uh, on their podcast, and, and as they do their shows this week. But uh, understandably, those guys are probably going to be struggling a little bit. So, um, we'll do the best that we can to acknowledge and, and spend a little bit talking about uh, Eric uh, and his legacy, both as a basketball player and as a man. Uh, you may remember uh, it was announced back in the late spring that Eric had been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. Uh, and you know he did put out a, a very encouraging video to uh, the fans at uh, late night, or I'm sorry, at live action with, with Hubert Davis back in, uh, in October. Um, seemed to be doing well, but obviously as, as cancer goes, uh, y'all know how this 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 can can affect people and how quickly uh, things can go. So, 
Um, just want to take a second and acknowledge not only the player that Eric Montross was, uh, but also the guy. First off, I'll, I'll go to Sherelle and Sean and see, do you guys want to share some of your favorite uh, Eric Montross player memories? I, I know there's, in looking at social media today, everybody's had some. And the beautiful dialectic about his passing is that um, it hurts, right? Like everybody that's a fan of the program and that appreciates Carolina basketball and has followed Carolina basketball, it's interacted with Eric hurts to hear of his passing. But the, the flip side of that is that it's forced everybody to share all these really amazing stories, uh, not only from his playing career and how they interacted with him and maybe as a recruit coming to Carolina, but uh, how people have gotten to know him as he's been around the program. So Cheryl, I'll come to you first. You have a, an Eric Montrose memory you want to share, and it could be on the court or off. Either way is fine. Yeah, I, I think you said it uh, pretty well, Joey. Just a, a really sad day for Carolina basketball and those of us who follow it and, and cover it. Um, I didn't have the pleasure of knowing him personally. Um, he was uh, before my time at UNC. And then uh, I guess I left UNC as far as athletics are concerned right around the time when he started doing color commentary. So obviously you remember him as a player just because, you know, Coach Smith beat out Bob Knight for a kid born in Indiana who, you know, was destined to play at Indiana. So like, from the recruiting side, there's always that part of it that's cool that, you know, it, it eventually helped pave the way for Sean May and Tyler Zeller as, you know, big guys from Indiana who come to UNC and win national championships. So there's that part of it. Um, I think for me, honestly, like I was still, I think I was 10, 9 or 10 when Carolina won the national championship in 93. So like I remember him, but I, I don't remember him quite in the way um, that you do when you get older. I remember him now because... I travel a lot and I drive a lot across the state for various reasons. And so I'm always listening to the Tyrell Sports Network, you know, trying to find games and um, trying to just understand what's going on. You know, the Kentucky game, I had to listen to that on the Tyrell Sports Network because I was driving home from Raleigh uh, down to Charlotte. So my most of my memories now are of him as a color commentator. And it's just weird because he was such a good player, but it's been so long since he played at Carolina that you kind of remember him for his. I guess you would call that his third or fourth career. Uh, I'm sure you'll talk about some of the um, philanthropic stuff he did, but I, I remember him almost as a color analyst as much as a basketball player, just because it coincides with, with me kind of uh, being older. And he was, he was, I, I loved him on the color commentary because he made sure to get his point across. Like, you know, <laughs> Jones would say something like, uh, you know, Carolina, just scored and it's 78 73 and Eric would make sure that he pinpointed exactly what happened. And if it took a little time through the free throws, he would, he, he'd be making his point. And then he would say, you know, uh, uh, Lawson made the first free throw and he would continue on with his point. Lawson made the second free throw. So he would just keep going until he got his point across. And I always, always find that funny. Not everybody can segue to doing live basketball. I don't think I could do it. And, and I know it's a, doing color is is very unique because you have to bring a perspective that not everybody has uh and, and he had that having been successful at the highest level the guy had a eight or nine year nba career uh was you know the definition of a true big um in the you know in the in the 90s in the nba and and played for some good teams uh but yeah i think you're right Cheryl. he was always good to to toe that line of not being too saccharine about what was going on on the court, but you could still tell that he was a Carolina basketball player, a Carolina alum, and a fan. And that was that was a beautiful part of it. Yeah, he would always get like a woo baby in or something yeah. after a dunk. <laughs> like if you go back and listen to um, 
Coach K's last game at uh, Cameron, like the second half, he's just kind of yelling. <laughs> oh, he's, <laughs> he's all in. Yeah, you can feel it coming through the radio. So I, I just those those kind of special things. And again, it's crazy because he was such a great player at UNC. He played in the NBA a long time. And for me, I kind of remember him as a color analyst. And I, I, I think I'm just not realizing that. Yeah, it's a, but, but again, like that's what unfortunately his his untimely passing is is getting everybody to remember how good he was at so many things. Sean, do you have a memory of, of Eric that jumps out at you, be it from his his playing career, uh, you know, professionally or in college or or even as a color commentator? Nothing specific, but I think similar to Sherelle, he's probably for me the first uh UNC player that you you really remember. Um I was like eight or nine when when they won the ninety three championship game. So I think it was probably 91, 92, 93 when you actually remember those games, those games you're watching. So he's kind of the obviously there's Michael Jordan and all the guys you read about. But in terms of watching really the first um, guy that that you remember right off the bat, just in terms of watching at that at that age and what he was able to do in the 93, 93 championship. And then, you know, playing video games while he's in the NBA, uh, NBA Live, whatever it whatever it was back back then, I think uh nba jam you could play him against a werewolf in one of the games like there was a a cheat code where you could play against like a werewolf and um oh god what was the a mummy and something else like an nba jam like a halloween mode but he could play like literally play against those those characters go ahead i'm sorry (laughs) um i don't know if i got if i got that far on nba jam but in terms of uh you know was was always been more of a, a tv tv guy but it's always fun to see him at the games, they would always flash to him and to see, as Cheryl mentioned, the career, the NBA career, but then coming back and how ingrained he was into uh, not just the basketball system, but UNC in general. And also on Inside Carolina, reading about uh, all the donations and the fundraisers and the camps that he always did uh, for the Children's Hospital, I thought was always pretty cool, um, you know, giving back the way he did. So I think, you know, those those are the the things that when you say Eric Montrose, obviously the, the double zero, the size, um, but just being really the first UNC lasting memory, as well as what he what he was able to do uh, off the court as well. I, I think um, I think it, that's a really well put uh, way to say that, Sean. I think it is a combination of of a lot of things. I will actually um, I'll actually open up a little bit. I, my real, um, my full-time gig, uh, I was able to actually interact with Eric some, just our paths crossed in a lot of different ways. But I think looking at social media today and reading all these stories about Eric, a lot of them are not about basketball. And, and Adam Lucas wrote a great thing about um, telling stories about Eric and, and how so much of his, uh, his legacy doesn't involve basketball because he was so plugged into the community. Uh, I think he was probably the epitome of what North Carolina fans would call a, a Carolina guy in a sense that uh, didn't get in trouble, was a great figure in, in the community, uh, had a great basketball career, did things the right way. But going back to his work in the community, if you read all the things about him today, everybody seemed to have some sort of interaction with him, whether it was just him being nice as a guy, uh, taking time for people, listening to people's stories about um, you know their first memories of him and uh, he had a great memory about remembering people, and that was something that, that people always said about Dean Smith as well. But Eric uh, did a lot in this community. Uh, as soon as uh, as he basically left Chapel Hill, and matter of fact, when he was still in Chapel Hill, he was doing things um, for the Clark Teen Room at the UNC Children's Hospital. 
And that was somebody that touched him and he felt like, all right, we need to raise money and make 18 room in, in, in the children's hospital. And that's still, that's still there today um, on the seventh floor at UNC Children's. Uh, there's a lot of other work. That, go ahead. No, I, go ahead. I'll, I'll jump in after you. Okay. Um, one of the other things that, that people may not know about is as, as all the things you read today, they're all true. And they're also just a fraction of the stuff that he did in the community. Um, again, having some personal interaction on the, the philanthropic side of things, I can tell you there was a lot of stuff that, that Eric and his wife, Laura, and, and his, his kids did in this community that nobody will ever find out about because it's just he wasn't about the praise. Um, he wasn't about doing things to get credit. He was doing it because it was the right thing. It was because he felt like it was what they should do. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing is just recognizing he was seven foot tall, you know, 260 some odd pounds, 280 probably at his biggest. But he was so much bigger than that, if you can actually, you know, wrap your head around that. He was literally a larger than life guy because of what he did for so many folks off the court, whether it be raising money for UNC and through the Rams Club, whether it was, you know, helping to, to get funds for additions for the basketball facilities, whether it was working for UNC Children's Hospital. He was on the board for a lot of other nonprofits, um, a lot of them built around pediatric health causes. He was just that kind of guy that if you were around him, you knew the value of doing for others and you knew the value of doing all the time for other people. So I think that's probably going to be his legacy uh, amongst other things. And as as people that are better at this than I am, start eulogizing him and sharing their stories. And, you know, I'm sure there will be a service at some point and people will probably get excerpts from from what's said about Eric there. There's going to be a bunch of stuff that comes out about him and people are just going to be have their minds blown because of what a big figurative person that he was based on his impact and how many people he touched. Sure. I'll go ahead, man. Um, one thing I, and this is my final thing. Uh, well said again, Joey, I, I think it's interesting. One thing people loved about Roy Williams on the recruiting trail is that when he would go to a gym, let's say he was in Lorenberg or, or Lumberton or Maxton or somewhere down there, like he would be the rock star in the gym. He would stay in the gym and take pictures with every single person until everybody got the picture they wanted. So today I'm on my social media feed and I feel like, again, I didn't know Eric, you know, really at all outside of his Carolina persona, but it feels like he must have been the same way because I promise you, I feel like everybody I follow has a picture where seven foot Eric Montrose yes. is right here yes. and they're right here and he's smiling and you give him a hug or, or something. So I, I, th I thought that was interesting because those are the type of people who will stay for, you know, the last kid to get an autograph or the last person to get a picture who, who kind of, um, whose reputation precedes them. And I think, that's what I saw a lot of is that you knew this was a good person because there was like not anyone. There's always someone. There's always someone who's going to. Everybody's got a story. Yeah. But there's always someone who's going to antagonize or always someone who's going to be negative. And there hasn't been a single, single person uh, with yeah. Eric. Because that's how you know that you, you know, a, a, a great person will be missed. Well, um, I, I'll just I'll, I'll leave this for a lot of other folks to be able to, to share their thoughts in the coming days and weeks. But. Um, certainly on behalf of Sean and Sherelle and the entire IC family, um, you know, we want to send our best, warmest, uh, strongest vibes and, and positive light towards Laura and, and his kids uh, as they go on without him. And uh, it is nice to see that he passed with so many people in his family around him um, because he did so much for so many while he was here. And so I just say, you know, Tar Heel fans, hug your people tonight. Um, if you feel so moved, I'm sure there will be opportunities to give in Eric's honor and Eric's memory. Uh, in, in the, the upcoming days. So just keep your eyes out for social media there. But 
Yeah, take time to acknowledge uh, the big thing, the the things that the big guy did for for UNC, and and if he if he had an impact on your life, awesome. Even if it was just as being a fan, just make sure to 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 recognize and enjoy those memories because uh, we've all only got one take at this thing. Um, thanks for humoring us. I know that's a little heavy and, and hard to start, but uh, we felt like we would be remiss if we didn't uh, at least acknowledge you know the impact that he had on the North Carolina basketball community. Fellas, there's not really an easy way to do this. So I'm going to go ahead and shift into talking about the game against Kentucky this past weekend. Uh, North Carolina falls to seven and three, losing 87 to 83 to the Wildcats in a game that, you know, looking at social media, I think opinions were all over the place. You know, a lot of folks were telling me I'm being too positive and I was being too soft and, you know, moral victories or whatever. But um, however you want to slice it, you know, it was North Carolina against a ranked opponent. Uh, they they lost after doing some good things, but also doing some bad things. So first things first, Sean, I'll go to you. Uh, what did you see that that caused this loss for North Carolina kind of on a primary aspect? You know, what was the the top one or two things that caused this? I mean, we could we could slice this for a couple hours and look at, you know, this turnover or, or you know, that missed assignment. But what were the, the one or two things you feel like really dictated the outcome of this ballgame? We talked about the athleticism and size concerns coming in. But I think more when you, from the opening, opening position, it was the lack of, uh, I guess, focus, focus is the right word in terms of uh, they were sloppy early on. Um, I think in this type of game, it was clear that Kentucky was the more talented team, but they were definitely not as crisp of a team like a UConn. So I think even though they're more talented, if UNC had been sharper mentally, that they wouldn't have been playing from behind all game. Um, and, and to me, that was that's shown out in the turnovers. That's shown out first time this season. The assist to turnover ratio has been less than one, you know, negative. So I think really it was it was that that started the game a little sloppy, whether maybe they were nervous, whatever it may be, but they, they didn't come out focused. And I think that continued uh, all the way through the final possession, which was shown either in the defensive rebound that went off, uh, you know, went out of bounds or, or obviously the, the last, the last play call. But I think with all those mishaps, that's how you get down double digits and you're fighting your way, your way back, which at halftime only down two, I think you, I mean, that's, that was a huge, huge win um, given how I thought poorly they had played and then they get down quickly again and, and fight back. But, once again, I think if they were crisper, more mentally focused, um, it, it, it could have been a different story. Maybe not. But the only other thing, uh, the transition play, I think this was something last year that, that drove me crazy was the lack of passing in transition. And uh, I found myself yell, yelling at the TV some more. Uh, and, you know, there were there were a few opportunities where they did score without, without passing the ball. Um, I think Elliot got a layup, Cormac, um, and even first half comeback, which started with RJ assist to, to Cormac, but in large part, uh, way too much dribbling in transition, um, didn't look to pass the ball, move it quick. And I think that was just, I'm not going to say selfishness, but it was not a reflective of the team I've, I've seen this year and how they've been playing together. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I, I think you, know, you could argue that the team had, um, had energy to start, but I, I think as far as like intensity and focus, yeah, I agree with you. And um, I think Dewey said uh, maybe on the post game with Tommy Ashley here on IC that uh, it seemed like the team was just a little too fast, maybe a hair too quick, maybe just 
you know, kind of had that old Clydesdale on roller skates type type action going on, on the floor where they're just um, not quite there. You can see they were, they were gripping just a little bit. Cheryl, I'll go to you the same thing. What did you see that you felt like caused this game uh, to kind of tip towards Kentucky when, you know, a, a lot of things seem to seem like seem to indicate the North Carolina would come in pretty focused. You know, honestly, it came down to things I didn't really expect. Didn't expect you. I know that Kentucky is, is great at getting you to turn the ball over, but I, I didn't expect UNC to struggle, especially in the first half. I think they had 11 or 12 in the first half. And I mean, the other team is is getting shots and getting offensive rebounds. And you're not even getting the ball on the rim. So that's that's probably number one. You know, we entered it talking about Kentucky shooting from three. Like, oh, they're such a great shooting team. Both teams had eight threes. So UNC was fine there. The foul line was basically the same. It's just Kentucky had so many more opportunities to score than UNC did because of the offensive rebounds and because of the turnovers. So I I, I don't know. That, that was not the way I saw that game playing out, honestly. I think um, UNC as a team has to rebound better. I, I mean, that's pretty obvious. Um, I, I don't know exactly how they go about doing that, considering the lineup they play the most. You know, we, we've talked about it ad nauseum is, is a smaller lineup. I think you saw the athleticism difference between the two teams. Um, pretty, pretty glaring. Uh, not quite JV versus varsity, but there was a, a, a pretty big difference. Uh, so part of it is just the makeup of UNC's team. And then a part of it is they were just un, unusually sloppy, I think, um, on Saturday. You add all that together, plus Armando not having his best game. Um, and it's kind of a, a miracle. They were down by two and then, you know, had the ball with a chance to tie with, I think, 11, you know, 11, 10 seconds left in the game. Um, I don't really know how it happened. I guess the free throw line helped a ton. Um, all that to say, I think the angst that you're feeling, Joey, from the fan base, if I can go back into my. Yeah, no, man, you're, you're, sit, you're taking me right where I want to go. Yeah, far away. If I can sit the fan base down on the couch and, you know, take notes and listen to them. Um, I think it, it's the same issue. It's like they want this team to be good and they know this team is different. And they know that this team fought back, but fighting back isn't just good enough anymore mm -hmm. because UNC has had, frankly, five years that are beneath what the UNC program expects to yeah. be. Um, Hubert Davis has talked about a standard and talked about what UNC expects. And I don't think either side is wrong. I think the people who are like, yeah, UNC, I think the number is 13 and 31 um, in Q1 games the last four or five years. Yeah, that's that's not good, obviously. Um, I think the side that says UNC, you know, the expect expectations have changed because it feels like they come into these big games not even expecting to win or the fans don't expect them to win. I think that's fair. I think that's kind of accurate because right now Kentucky is a more talented team, like Sean said. I also think that you do have to separate this team because it is so new. And I know we talked about it. We had a we had a, a service for it a couple of weeks ago that we have to move on from it. But I think the fans just aren't able to uncouple the two because of Armando Baycott and AJ da RJ Davis still being on the team. So it's a weird situation where I think both sides are right, where yes, this UNC team is better. They've improved. United played UConn relatively close. They were right there with Kentucky. They fight back. They have a different style, but it's still kind of the, a similar result. Um, yeah. So I think that's, that's where the consternation is kind of coming in. Um, and again, I don't think either side is wrong. I think if you want to argue, that UNC just isn't the same program and, and 
the Kentucky game is a reason why I think you have enough ammunition to argue that side. If you want to say, ah, one game, a team a little more, a little bit more talented than them, you know, beat them and made some tough shots. I think you're right too. So it, it's all of that. And that's where I think that angst that you're seeing in, in your timeline and, and talking to people comes from. Yeah. And I think, I, I think it's, it's okay to be upset with the loss, right? Like that's, that's fanhood. Um, I, I think recognizing the flaws in that game are absolutely okay too. You know, Sean pointed out a couple of good ones. Uh, you threw some out there too, Shrill. I mean, you know, the focus, uh, the rebounding is concerning. Um, you know, and, and UNC's uh, inability to to react when Kentucky started going, uh, you know, running pick and roll stuff or trying to just keep switching until they they got the matchup they wanted. That was frustrating. Um, so I think it's okay for fans to be frustrated. I think where I stop is. Is, is is I can't go any farther to that point of like everything is terrible and this team is exactly the same as they've been the last five years and you know and and this is the same as last year because I just don't I don't see that um Sean I'm I'm, I'm coming to you from a very uh, I want to give me I want you to give me a very uh antiseptic look at this what of this team's flaws as we sit here uh you know mid to late December what of this team's flaws that we saw against Kentucky are fixable in your opinion well, I think, well, I think we saw the the turnovers. I wouldn't say that has been a, a staple. Uh, they've been they've been pretty pretty good this year. I mean, I I think from a offensive, well, offensive perspective, you know, they're they're still playing playing well, top ten offensively and offensive efficiency. Um, I think the good thing was seeing Cormac Ryan play play very well, uh, especially after us talking about you know what's wrong with with Cormac Ryan. So. I think hopefully that that layoff gave him some rest. Um, I thought he did look a little bouncier and and more confident in, in the shot, which we talked about last week. But then then you have Harrison Ingram, who at the same time struggled. I think the athleticism for him was a was a was a big issue. Uh, it was a little quick on his shots. Obviously struggled attacking the basket. So I think now if you can somehow start to get those guys playing consistently with R.J. Davis, then that's three plus. Armando, uh, but defensively, there's been a lot of talk. You know, do they need to stop switching one through four? Is that giving up easy baskets? Uh, and I think for me, I'd rather see them try to fight through a little bit more. Now, if they have to switch or uh, you know they they need to hedge, etc., then then they should do that. But I wouldn't mind seeing them fight through a little bit more in those situations. I think at the beginning of the play, uh, you know, it 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 doesn't allow for any easy um, opportunities right off the bat for the offense, but as they work it three, four five passes, they are able to get, get into those positions they want. And I think Oklahoma will be interesting in terms of how they, they operate um, in terms of the, the rebounding. I think, you know, I, I was surprised initially when they put Zayden high in, but it, it made sense. Uh, I was hoping to see a little more than just this two minutes. And I think he could have been, a guy who could have played the four, added some size, not given up a lot defensively, uh, and and seeing you know how that could have affected the boards because I, I I think um, uh, Jeff Jeff Vance just commented on it, but more often than not they are out of position in terms of the the rebounding yeah. and Armando as great as he is defensively on the rebounding perspective, sometimes he was out of position. If he was out of position, then they had no hope you know, jumping against guys much taller, much more athletic. So I well, think you saw, I hate to interrupt you, but you saw exactly what you're saying on that, that next to last rebound of the game. 
where UNC held them down to like a three second, you know, violation or whatever. And you end up where, um, where RJ Davis is on the back of a bigger guy because they had switched everything. And to your point, that's one more second chance that, that actively you take that away, maybe changes the outcome of the game. Who knows? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, that, that was, I think really it from a, a defensive rebounding perspective and defensive perspective, but that's obviously an area they, they need to improve upon. Um, offensively, they're not going to be hitting on all cylinders hundred percent of the time. They can definitely get, get better. I think get back to, uh, the ball movement they had, but defensively is the area that they're going to have to show uh, bigger growth in terms of, uh, you know, becoming a, a legit tournament team. Sure. I'll I'll wanna, wanna, I'll, yeah, go ahead. I was Sorry. Say, I, 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 I was going to jump in too. I, I think uh, the, a lot of people have questions about the switching and that being the defensive style. And, and obviously I'm not, I'm not like basketball, basketball exit O's guy. Like I know a little bit, but um, and I, I'd love to discuss this with Trevor, but I was talking with someone today and basically they were like, you know, you switch because you want to control the effect that screening has on the defense. And UNC guys are evidently taught to um, push on their switches, which is literally like push the guy <laughs> into the switch. Like you push your guy into the switch. And what's happening right now from this person I talked to, they're saying that UNC is pointing on their switches, which is just like, hey, let's let's switch. And in doing so, you're not disrupting the flow of the offense because the whole point of of screens and everything is to create actions that give you an advantage. So it gives you three on two or two on one or whatever. And so UNC's guys, because they're not pushing um, on the switches, they're pointing. Evidently, what this what this causes is freedom of movement, and that's how you get guys from Villanova and uh, you know Connect and uh, the guy from Arkansas and all these players just going downhill with freedom to the rim. So I think the goal makes sense. The person I talked to said it's a sound strategy. It's what most people do. Um, but UNC just isn't fully executing um, the game plan. And yes, it does result in some mismatches. It results in you know slips to the rim often, and, and it can hurt rebounding. But overall, the goal is to kind of prevent those open shooters and, and to prevent um, guys getting downhill. And right now, it's not quite working but I, I think the strategy is sound and i think they can improve at it um, but as we talked about there's just certain things that can improve there there are some just physical limitations so right. they're gonna they're gonna have to kind of work through that and y'all can correct I mean, me from go ahead sean i was gonna say brought up kind of two points along with seeing some of the comments um you know one from a defensive perspective i i thought they could have gone to the press either in the first half or earlier in the second half going to to it up one I thought was not not the right time. It also allowed Kentucky to to speed up, get ahead of ahead of the defense, and that resulted in in Bradshaw getting the offensive rebound and going back up, which yeah. led to the six six zero run versus a half court set. Granted, in that then half court set, they were pretty much isolating on on the defenders and uh, you know hitting hitting their shots. The other thing early on, I mean Kentucky got five star central, the guys that already have one foot out the door into the NBA. And they're diving onto the floor after loose balls, you know, like exactly. like they're they're you know fourth fourth year seniors, et cetera. So I, I think that was a that is something that Carolina can control in terms of how aggressive are you the more aggressive team, uh, or are you the one dictating that aggressiveness, which we've talked about a, a few times. And that was the one thing I think hearing Huber Davis's comments and, and knowing that the team had some tough practices last week, I thought would be a little more 
um, obvious against Kentucky. And for whatever reason, it wasn't. You know, you can hash that until everybody's blue in the face. Um, it's it's funny, you know, Cheryl, you talk about you know, UNC doing the situation where they're switching seemingly everything. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think this has been something – I think this is new to UNC this year. Um, and I think one of the things that has been, uh, has been a knock on Carolina in the past is they leave too many perimeter shooters open. Uh, and a lot of that, you know, getting perimeter shooters open was because UNC was, was staying home on screens and were getting screened pretty badly. So this is kind of the, the flip side, I guess, a little bit of, of UNC growing into learning how to switch everything, um, or at least switching more than they historically have been. Go ahead, Trill. And, and again, to do a psyche, you know, psychoanalysis on the fan base, it's just it's very jarring because everyone is for so long is so used to Roy Williams. Priority one is rebounding. Priority two is rebounding. Priority three is running faster. Priority four is re- rebounding. And, you know, there were teams much, I don't want to say much smaller than this, but teams with comparable size under Roy Williams, under a different philosophy, who, you know, led to the country in offensive rebounding percentage and defensive rebounding percentage. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, it's different because it is a different style. And even though this is year three, we're all still adjusting to how Hubert Davis wants to play. And, and it is a different style. So I think that's part of it too. When, yeah. when your bedrock principle for, you know, almost 50 years has been, we're going to come in and we're going to out-rebound you with monsters in the paint. And then that changes, you know, very quickly over the course of basically two and a half years. I think that's uh, another reason that it feels so jarring because they're not rebounding terribly. They're they're just rebounding kind of average. But at Carolina, you know, for the last, like I said, 50 years, rebounding average just doesn't get it. Yeah. I mean, you've got to have when you're playing a straight up man to man defense and you're staying home on screens, it's easier to box out your man because you're on your man. And to your point from earlier, Sherell, when you're getting uh, when you're getting switches, it's hard to box out your man when you're gu- you're the one and you're guarding a five, um, and that can happen when you're switching everything. So it'll be interesting to see what gets tweaked and what gets changed because you know post game and then in uh, what we've seen uh, in comments from the players, you know, obviously they recognize that rebounding gave Kentucky a lot more possessions, um, turnovers gave Kentucky a lot more possessions. So it'll be interesting to see how they change that. Um, one of the kind of the prevailing rhetorics that I see that I saw on the message boards and and on social during and after the game was the thought about uh about how this affects you know North Carolina's postseason resume we're not going to use the word that we banned last week but I I can hear folks saying you know much like last year when North Carolina was a bubble team uh that you know you've got to win some of these games uh true North Carolina won against Tennessee but lost against UConn and Kentucky and that's accurate uh, I, I think they'll have a chance against Oklahoma. We'll talk about that in a second. But I don't think you can have it both ways. I think you can either believe that the ACC is going to be boo-boo trash garbage this year, in which case North Carolina should win most of their games, uh, if not a, a, you know, an overwhelming majority of them. Or you can worry about you know, you can worry about this team being a bubble team. I don't think we've seen a bubble team. I understand where folks are are skittish and a little um, little shell shock from seeing last year where. The resume just wasn't strong enough. But I think this year, um, especially if North Carolina is able to beat Oklahoma, who looks a lot better now than they did three weeks ago, um, I just don't see this team being a bubble team, especially considering what the conference looks like right now. Sean, I'm going to ask you, is is the, the resume a concern right now, knowing what we know about the ACC and based on what we've seen with the eye test from this team so far this year? At this moment in time, 
No, I, I think the, the Oklahoma game is a game that most people probably, myself included, put as a, a W uh, when you were going through the schedule early on, just given uh, Oklahoma where they're uh, where the game where the game is. Uh, you know, I think they were in the 40s to 50s as well. Now here they are, um, one spot ahead in Kempom and and top 10 top 10 team. So this is a great resume opportunity. If they do lose to Oklahoma, uh, you know, then you're really two and four against solid teams with one of those being Arkansas, who once again, who, who knows where they, where they end up. And then, then it does not, I'm not saying it becomes dire, but it, it does become nerve wracking again, uh, because you don't know where are those, where are those quad one wins going to come from while mm-hmm. also avoiding some of those, those bad losses. And I think it goes back to when we did the in-depth uh, piece on the ACC is that a lot of these teams aren't going to get the national respect, but they can, you know, they can still, they, they can, can still, still win. Be, they can still win, uh, especially when you when you start three games on the road. So, I think uh, I don't want to say a, a must win like we were using last year with with you know the Ohio State game or Michigan the year before, but it's it's a can't lose. They can't lose it. Um, yeah. <laughs> and if they do win, that that'll be at least for now before they get into Big Twelve play a strong. Uh, you know, a strong boost on the resume, which once again, they didn't really have last year going in outside of Ohio State. Yeah, sure. I'll go ahead, man. You were going to jump. Well, I was saying, what what's um what's just below must win, like on the scale of like cliches about games. Whatever is just below must win is what. That's that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't we'll we'll have to figure it out before the end of the show. Whatever that that one rung down is because um it it feels a little like Ohio State last year to me. Um, not saying that this UNC team again, this is a completely different team. I think it's a better team. Yeah. Um, but I do think when you start to look at the schedule, like Sean said, three straight road games to start ACC play. I mean, I don't think losing four out of five over the next three weeks is like uh, a, a scenario that shouldn't be discussed because it's possible. Because road ga- we've always say road games in the ACC are tough. Oklahoma's a good team. You should be Charleston Southern. So, I mean, the, the color of, of what this season looks like uh, could be um, pretty intact, you know, by this time in, in three, three and a half weeks. So I think Wednesday is about as close as you can get to a must win in, in December. Not, not And not even because they might miss the tournament. I mean, they could miss the tournament, but more so just because you're still trying to flush away that taste from last year. I think the players yeah. are, too. You're still trying to get rid of it. And so finishing out um, a, a really good team um, like Oklahoma after the, the tough non-conference they've had, I think would, would be a, a boon for UNC. And let me add one thing, too. I'm, I'm going to look at the camera and I'm going to put somebody on notice. The, the schedule makers, I guess Hubert Davis and, and whoever else in, in the Smith Center office, y'all got to relax a little bit. Like, I understand they want to play. <laughs> tough games and awesome venues across the country against big name teams. But I mean, this, this, this schedule is a gauntlet. It's been really, really tough for them. I mean, I, I saw somewhere, I think I, I, I want to give proper credit. I can't remember the guy's name. So apologies. This is not me trying to take your stat. I think it was like, it's the first time UNC's played six straight or five of six teams who are ranked, you know, in a row or something like that. I, I'm, I'm completely messing it up. If you yeah. guys find it, please put it in the chat. Um, so, and then next year, you know, they have a game at Rupp and they're obviously going to be in the CBS sports classic next year. 
they're going to play either Tennessee, Kentucky, or Alabama in the ACC, SEC challenge. Mm-hmm. They're going to they're going to Maui next year. So I, I don't know, man. There needs to be a few, no disrespect, there needs to be a few more Charleston Southerns in there in the Smith Center. <laughs> and then also, if we're talking about um, uh, that, that three-letter phrase that we won't mention, Wednesday's game is like the perfect game. There it's, you go. Uh, it, it's a neutral game, but it's in mm-hmm. Charlotte against a good team. So if they win, it should be a Q1, you know, for the majority of the season. Like, if I were doing the schedule, again, and I'm not, those guys know what they're doing. Again, all due respect. But Carolina would be playing, like, kind of power five teams in Greensboro and in Charlotte and in Richmond and mm-hmm. in Norfolk and maybe one in Raleigh and maybe one in Fayetteville. Like, hey! Play, yeah, yeah. I had to hey, 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 watch play, your mouth. Watch your mouth. Played in the, played in the crown. But th- I think that's how you have to do it moving forward. Like, you can keep the same number of home games, but some of these – non-conference tilts you need to have those in what's considered technically neutral courts but we know are semi-neutral or almost home games that's the way i think moving forward on the schedule you have to do things and i think carolina fans trashed duke for a long time for their scheduling but there's a reason they did that there's a reason they did it for so long exactly the way they did playing neutral site games you know in greensboro uh in chicago and in places where where they had a predominantly heavy home crowd and, well, then there wasn't there wasn't even a benefit with the the three letter rankings, you know. Then, but now it it makes sense. You've seen that's how you have to do it. You either right. play in the Big Twelve, or it's going to be a whole bunch of. Let me be nice. You play in the Big Twelve, and there's going to be an opportunity. Speak for your mind, man. Ahead. Speak your mind. <laughs> or you go and you do this neutral court thing, and you just have to game the system a little bit because I don't know that ACC is going to be respected the way that we all think it should be. Like Clemson yeah. last year, again, I think they won fourteen games in the ACC and didn't make the NCAA tournament. That is, that's absurd. So you got to kind of look at that, do your research and then figure out a way uh, scheduling wise to move forward that best fits, you know, your team for that particular year. Um, so one last thing I'll get in here before we, we hit a quick break. Uh, I do uh, like, I, I do agree with you. I think that, you know, the, the Oklahoma game should give folks a pretty clear, uh, focus is, is what we're dealing with moving into uh, the conference season as this team you know, gets into three straight ACC road games. I just I I can't go with with the folks that are like that still have this birthright mentality of you know we're North Carolina we should be beating everybody like the other team has good scholarship players as well. It's okay to be frustrated, but like the birthright thought just doesn't exist in college basketball anymore. Um, I mean, if you look at the teams that are in, in, in top of, of the NCAA right now, they're not necessarily blue blood squads from 10 years ago. Um, you know, this this tournament thing that North Carolina just played in with UCLA and Ohio State, they're not even ranked right now. Kentucky was ranked, you know, at 19th going into the game Saturday. So I just I, I, I look at folks that are still making all making all these these statements about, you know, the, the, I understand the the angst and the frustration that the program's not been where it has for the last five years, but I, I just don't see where, and I, Sherelle will, will attest to this, I'm not always known as a positive guy, but I've seen enough from this team to to realize that they are better, I think, than a majority of the squads in, in the ACC, and, and that should play out over the next couple of weeks. Um, Sean, I'm going to ask you, uh, what day is it in California right now? Ready for ready for? Uh, Come on, man! Just answer the question, sir. All right, Monday. All right, what what's the date out there? I I, I don't know how things go in California. Eighteenth. <laughs> ah, it's the eighteenth. All right, so it's it's a week before Christmas. 
So that means you still have time to get Johnny T-shirt and, and get some stuff uh, for that person on your list, that Tar Heel on your list that needs good gear. Uh, Johnny T-shirt, big sponsors of Inside Carolina. We want you to patronize them the same way they support us. Uh, hit them up, johnnytshirt.com. They've been doing their 12 days of Christmas. Uh, you can absolutely snatch up some some good last-minute stocking stuffers, gifts there. They're running all kinds of crazy sales on and off, but their 12 days of Christmas thing is it's had some sneaky good finds. Check them out. If you're around town, uh, sneak up to Chapel Hill. You know They'll take care of you in person. Um, I don't want to guarantee they can get you something because I don't know how the mail goes right now, but they're really quick in shipping. I will say that. So if you still need something for a week from today, go ahead and hit Johnny T-Shirt up right now online, johnnytshirt.com. Use your 10% code on the premium message boards uh, to get that little extra off the top, save some money. Uh, and, and, you know, you can use that money to to throw around to, you know, your friends and family when uh, when the big guy comes down the chimney in, in a few days. Um, so hit up Johnny T-Shirt. We appreciate their support. Take a quick break. Let some national ads drop in here. Uh, if you're live with us, stick around. Uh, the recorded edition will have some national advertisements, so hang tight. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, Coast to Coast Podcast, back with you. Thanks for being here. Appreciate everybody in the chat tonight throwing us the throwing us the uh, the comments and the thoughts. Uh, again, if you've got questions and you want us to try to answer something in the show, we will uh, answer some good ones. Don't be giving us garbage questions. We don't need any of that. Um, we all got kids. We have to deal with that stuff anyway. Um, been talking a little bit about the UK game and, and how North Carolina uh, has things to work on. I do think there were some things they can build on going into Oklahoma. Uh, I saw Hubert Davis use Jalen Withers in a way that that could be po- a positive moving forward. I saw Hubert Davis, uh, again, get some positive results from using a uh, full court man to man and doing some full court trapping. So that'll be fun to watch. Sean, I have not watched Oklahoma yet this year. Full confession. But I do know they're undefeated. They're 10 and 0, one of the few teams remaining that are undefeated in, in, in the country. Uh, as of today's AP poll, they're number seven. Sean, what can we expect from a, a strategy standpoint? Uh, from an Oklahoma team that looks like they pl- they go legit eight or nine deep and get production out of that eight or nine. Yeah, they they do go they do go eight or nine, and I I think Porter Moser coming over from uh, Loyola Chicago, um, he has put his stamp on the on the team now three three years in, and I think he's gotten them to where where he wanted them to defensively, uh, top ten team in, in terms of of metrics uh, from a three point. Three point percentage. They they play the three ball really well defensively. So teams right now are shooting uh, under twenty six percent against them. So that's definitely a focus point. So I, I think that is an area to watch. We always talk about the threes. They did hit. They did hit the eight 
eight threes, but they did so at a 33% clip against Kentucky. Um, so defensively, Oklahoma is strong, tough, um, and I think it'll provide UNC a, a good test. Offensively, Oklahoma is just as good, if not better, than, than UNC at this point in time in terms of how well they've been shooting the ball inside the three-point line. Um, and they love to attack in the pick and roll. So I think it'll be interesting. Their, their two guards are both playing really well. Um, and they're going to attack, especially going left off the pick and roll. So it'll be interesting to see what what UNC's strategy is, because they like to do a lot of point guard center, one five uh, pick and rolls and get Armando in there and, and see what ha- see what happens. So I think from an individual talent perspective, UNC has it, but I think Oklahoma is a smart, tough, talented team. Um, so it should be should be an interesting interesting matchup in Charlotte. Cheryl, what are you looking for? Are you still planning on going to the game? By the way, I am not. Uh, shouts to the Charlotte Sports Foundation for the prizes. Uh, I'll say <laughs> all I know. All I know. <laughs> about Oklahoma again, uh, Porter. We we know Billy Tubbs, right? Yeah, we, we know the yeah Billy Tubbs. Uh, <laughs> we know the kind of UNC beat Oklahoma. Uh, Eric Montross was on that team back in 1990 in the second Red round. Red Fox with eight seconds. Yeah, left. Red Fox with the buzzer. That's that's probably the first game, like from start to finish. I actually remember. I remember there you go. Jeff Lebo and Kevin Madden. You know, 86, 87. But from start to finish, I remember that game. Um, but yeah, so so Moser obviously plays that a physical style of defense, you know, that, um, I, I know Hughley on the team. Uh, I don't know if y'all remember him. He was at Pittsburgh, uh, that, that wonderful night in February, two years ago. when me and Joey declared that UNC season was over. Uh, we, we did the podcast. He had 18 points in the Smith center that night. We, we said that UNC <sighs> accomplished anything. And a month later they'd be coach K and a month, you know, three weeks after that, they, they <laughs> make the final four. So, that's really all I know about uh, Oklahoma, honestly. Uh, they have a, a wonderful, wonderful name on the team, Latrey. I am just because his name is Latrey. I'm I'm anxious to watch him. He's a starter. He's a two guard. He's he's six four. So curious how that happens. From a UNC side, I think it, it's going to be a, a common refrain from us the entire season. The best defense is a humming offense, and you would hope that because it's going to be a UNC crowd, you know, probably 90, 10, 95, five if not more than that, that that will energize the team and they can get out and run because they have issues when they have to set up in the half court, you know, in, in half court defense and, and play against the set offense because of the switching, because of the size limitations. Mm-hmm. So the goal should be as much as possible to to run, to push the tempo, um, to get more possessions and, and try to to really just run them run them ragged. I really th- I think that's the the key to victory for UNC is to just run to get in transition so that those limitations, the the size on the perimeter and, and some of the rebounding issues don't really have a chance to fester. Yeah, you know, we've beaten it to death on on this show already a couple of times this year, but um the Roy Williams adage is correct. Everything looks better when the ball goes in the basket. North Carolina can get um, more than three guys, and it was even two uh, against Kentucky, to have the ball going in the basket pretty frequently. They're going to be hard to beat against anybody. Um, you know, so maybe that's uh, getting Cormac and RJ in a combination of of Harrison Ingram and, uh, and Armando Baycott. You know, starting to to feel themselves. I think that will, I think that will do a lot for for this team and. You know, again, four point a four point swing, maybe two extra possessions against Kentucky, and and the fan base and 
and everybody's joining us in the chat tonight might think differently about this squad. It's, it's hard to say, but it definitely will be paramount to see more effort uh, winning those 50-50 balls that seem to go, uh, you know, Kentucky's way the other night. Um, you know, making sure that they can counter the toughness like they saw against UConn uh, and just literally playing crisp, well-defined, intentional basketball uh, is going to be what's required against a, an Oklahoma team. And again, yes, yeah, Sean pointed it out earlier. He nailed it three weeks ago or preseason. Um, but even as recently as three weeks ago, you know, this Oklahoma game looked like a, a surefire win. And man, I don't know where Vegas is going to set this, but it's it's definitely looking a whole lot different as we sit here uh, as we sit here a, a week from uh, a week from Christmas. Um, guys, last little thing we'll touch on um, is some recruiting news. Uh, Sean, you were telling me, uh, I think uh, City of Palms started uh, started this week, and we've also got um, we've also got a lot of uh, other you know recruiting holiday type tournaments going on. Uh, so, why don't you throw out what you've seen there and what's really kind of uh, catching your eye in in the prep world? What? Yeah, City of Palms starts starts the day with with Link Academy down there. Um, I'd say that's my my favorite tournament, one I was able to go to for ten, I think, ten straight years. Haven't been there in a, in a few years, but we'll be checking out James Brown and and some of the other um, you know other players down there. This used to be a Roy Williams staple to to get down there for a day or two, and then yeah, I know there's going to be a lot of other local action as well, which I'm sure Sherelle can talk to. But City of Palms kind of gets everything going pre Christmas, and then there's a lot that happens in between Christmas and and New Year's as well. I, I do. I did also see this past weekend some uh, some really, really cush highlights from one Drake Powell uh, in a game where I think he hit 30 pretty early on. Cheryl, anything else you want to add from the, the prep or recruiting side of things? Yeah, like to your point about Powell, they're out in Oregon, um, Salem, actually, playing in a tournament there. And then they'll be back in a couple of days. And then after Christmas, they'll be in the John Wall uh, Invitational in Raleigh, which is going to be kind of stocked full of a lot of local Carolina targets, um, including Drake Powell, Kendra Harrison, the tight end in 26, who, excuse me, 25. Wait, I'm not sure which class he's in, I, I forget. The the super tight end who's ranked uh, number one overall player in the country in football, and then a top 50 player in basketball. Um, he's gonna be playing, Jackson Keith's gonna be there, uh, Cole Clore is going to be there. So it's, it's a pretty loaded event. Um, then the Chick-fil-A Classic, um is down in Columbia. Uh, AJ uh Debantha and Prolific Prep will be there amongst others. Um Beach Ball still goes on in Myrtle Beach. So there's three or four really good tournaments within, you know, a few hours drive of, of Chapel Hill, Charlotte, if you're if you're interested. Um and those most of those all start on the twenty seventh. All right. Appreciate that there update. All right. So I did get a couple of questions from the uh the chat and appreciate everybody who's been with us. For most of the show um i'll uh I'll, I'll hit these real quick uh either one of you can answer this as well this comes from our guy thomas yancey do the heels need to make lineup changes to fix the rebounding problems i don't think so because i think it it's it's a situation we talked about it before where when you when you put someone on the court who maybe specializes in rebounding you're losing that much somewhere else so i think it's more about fine-tuning exactly when they maybe need rebounding and try to pinpoint, you know, okay, this is the time when we really got to be solid on the boards and play it that way as opposed to making a wholesale lineup change. I think you you go with your most efficient offensive lineup because that's your your biggest strength. So you wouldn't 
you know, to use a football example, you wouldn't want to take Michael Parsons off the edge rushing the passer because that's what he's best at. So you want to have whatever it is you're best at, you want to do that to the best of your ability. And I think that's why you keep the lineup the way it is. Sean, you got any thoughts on that? No, I wouldn't I wouldn't say in terms of changing the lineup. I, I just think trying to get people a, a little bit better in position uh, to affect the game. I mean, I think Jalen Washington, he's been playing well at times, but but you saw him uh, you know, catch the ball. I thought he was gonna go straight up for a dunk and he puts it puts it on the floor and, and gets blocked. Uh, you know, if, if you had to for Jalen Washington, Terrell, what's like what's if you're like, all right, he has one shot, like what what shot is what shot do you want him do you want him taking? Yeah, yeah I wanted to I wanted to, to catch in the post. And I want him to turn turn and face and take it from about fifteen feet. So he he's only done that three times this whole season, and one of them yeah. was maybe a little forced on on Klingon, who goes goes seven two. So yeah. <laughs> um, I, I know he's expanded the game out of the three point line, but there's an example of just one to two times, you know, look to get him get him twelve fifteen feet, jab step and and face because it's not going to get blocked. So you know, there's there's a example of maybe utilizing Jalen Washington a little better. I think putting putting Zayden High in, um, you know. Just to get that experience rebounding and see what he can do given how he was playing early on. So I don't think a lineup needs to needs to be changed. I think if we can get Cormac Ryan and Harrison Ingram going at the same time, that can that can uh you know do wonders offensively and then kind of being smart with with how things uh are, are shaking out throughout the game. Yeah, and I do I, I can appreciate Hubert Davis's um he he always talked about in his opening press conference he's going to go by feel and we saw that a lot um you know especially in the final four run where he got to where he just felt those you know those five guys plus one uh for most of the tournament uh and, and so now you can kind of see a little bit where he's feeling out where guys work i mentioned the the jalen withers use uh the other day his usage rate was way up this past weekend against kentucky and so i've, I've seen a little bit of that too um to to see you know how he's kind of adjusting and seeing where guys go I worry about Jalen Washington uh, right now defensively. I think he's. Uh, I think teams are are kind of exploiting him a little bit. Uh, if they've got an athletic four man that he's guarding or an athletic five, I think he's struggling with that a little bit. Um, but he has done great. You know, is a little bit of a rim protector, probably more so than than Baycott because he's he's longer. Um, last question uh, from Jeff Vance: Will there ever come a time that Hubert has Washington and Baycott on the floor at the same time? Uh, and his kind of inclination is, is to see if if that helps rebounding. Um, you know, talking about kind of the old Roy Williams two big system. I'll address that and then let y'all let y'all chime in too. I think it's tough because so much of the game now is is not a two big system. I think it's one of the things that that a lot of people were critical of Roy Williams that hit his career at the end of his career, where you know just playing two bigs all the time was getting you know he was putting his guys on islands against much more athletic fours. Um, and even some teams that were playing five out, uh, it was a struggle. So I, I, I think the the logic I see where you're going, Jeff, is is you know you've got logic of putting two more bigs in there to help on the glass. But by the same token, if 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 you're having one of those guys have to guard out at three point line against an athletic four, you know you're, you're taking them away from the basket anyway, and that's going to hurt the rebounding that you put them in there for. Sean, do you want to you want to kind of follow up there? Is there something maybe I missed? No, I mean I think yeah, it could help defensively from a rebounding perspective but i think i was always surprised when when you did see washington playing the four just from a agility standpoint and unless unless it's going in for you know a specific one to two possessions 
and you can use them effectively. Uh, you know, that's why I, I was saying Zayden High maybe a little earlier, just because I think from a agility and switching perspective, he offers a little more little more resistance, um, as well as just you know I think moves moves a little better. Where you know I'm fine keeping Washington as that backup five, and if he can start to come along and be a little more consistent, you know perhaps you could see that. But I think it would have to be in very specific situations. Shrell, anything that we missed there? No? All right. You guys know what this last segment is. Uh, thanks to our friends over at Congruity HR, your business optimized. Uh, Congruity is your next partner for your small or medium-sized business. I'm calling that a shot right now. They can help you take care of your human resources needs. Uh, they can help you with your benefits. The sort of administrative stuff that can really hold back a small or medium-sized business because you know, you as a business owner or business manager want to be focusing on growth. Let Congruity help you there. Uh, go to Congruity HR forward slash Tar Heels. They'll give you a free assessment to see how they might be able to help you. Uh, if they can't help you, they'll tell you they can't help you. But either way, you've got a free assessment and a potential team member that can come really clean that stuff up for you uh, and help you, I guess, hone in and to use their term, optimize how well your business is going. Uh, so check them out. We appreciate Congruity sponsorship. You know, they're, they're a national brand, but they're, they're locally based and, and they want you to succeed, right? So check them out, Congruity HR forward slash Tar Heels. Get that reassessment. Find out how your business, small or medium size, can improve itself. All right. Give me two cents brought to you by Congruity. Congruity, excuse me. Sherelle, I'll go to you first. Uh, the first thing I would say, Armando Baycott, uh, I think people just need to be patient. Um, I think maybe... I don't want to say they're expecting too much of him. He he knows he can play better, and I think he knows he needs to play better. But he's still a really good college big man. Um, he's still averaging a double double. He's had a rough couple of weeks, but I mean there have been players in, in the recent past during their final seasons at Carolina um, who have had significant struggles for stretches, and then they got it together. I mean, look at Marcus Page's January of his senior year. Uh, mm -hmm. Look at Kennedy Meeks's December and January of their senior years. I think you just have to give these guys a little bit of time. Um, when, when I say a little bit of time to play out of the slump that they're in. Um, yeah. And and I think Baycott will do that. So that's one. And two, uh, obviously we haven't talked a lot about RJ Davis, who's playing at an incredible level <laughs> offensively. Uh, was it five, five straight games now with 26? Five straight. Game? Yeah. Um, which is ridiculous. Another stat that um, we uh, had help digging out. Brian Ives helped me, dig this up and i want to give a shout to kenny williams who was on justin jackson's podcast shooting it straight with justin jackson he was like yeah you know rj davis is a guy who can give you 10 rebounds in a game give you 30 points and i was like huh how many players in carolina history have Can't had single games where they had 30 points in a game at one point in their career 10 rebounds in a, in a game at one point in their career and 10 assists in one game at some point in their career and so i was like brian longer. Yeah, I was like, Brian, I know it's not been the last 20 years. I can tell you that at the top. I was like, but let's let's dig into it. And so he helped me, and we came up with a list. There's four guys who have done it in the history of Carolina basketball. That is, at least once in their career, they've had one game where they had 30 points. At least once in their career, they had one game where they had 10 rebounds. At least once in their career, they had one game where they had 10 assists. The list is R.J. Davis, Walter Davis, Larry Miller, and Steve Bucknell. Bucknell. So that's the list. Four times, four people in their careers – in the history of Carolina basketball can say they've done that. So I think that shows the kind of player RJ Davis has been in his four years at Carolina. And he's arguably playing the best he's ever played. 
Yeah, it's it, it's crazy to see. And again, for me, it's not even just watching the scoring. It's watching how confident he is with the ball right now. It's just absurd. And it feels next level to see what he looks like when he gets the ball in any situation at this point in time. Um, you know, the, that, that stretch he had in the second half where North Carolina was struggling to get any stops. I mean, he was just might as well have been playing on the moon. He was, he was so just far in the stratosphere. Uh, and to your point about Baycott, Sherrill, I, I, I want to point this out for the folks that are listening and the folks in the chat. Armando Baycott's got a different cast around him right now. If you think about last year, everything worked through him. Well, you know, North Carolina, you know, fans and, and IC subscribers and stuff complained last year because nobody else was helping. Well, now you've got other people helping, and it's tough for people to adjust that. I mean, you can you can be frustrated with the numbers and all that that too. I think just like Sherrill said, th- this team still has not played but ten games together, and there's going to be some things that adjust on the fly. You know, last week we were talking about Cormac Ryan. I mean, just it's hard for all of it to work at one time until it does. Uh, Sean, I want to ask you, man, give me your two cents uh, before we go. Brought to you by Congruity. I'll stay. I'll stay on Armando just because I think that's been the, the topic with the his six turnovers and and only four shot attempts. So I went back and looked at all his made baskets in the in the tournament run just to see what you know what was he doing then and and what was he doing now. And you know, I, I don't think there's a, a you know one thing to one thing to point to. I, I think one thing. One thing he he can correct himself is you know he knows the refs are always looking at him a little bit differently so there's no need to you know throw the shoulder in on the picks and you know basically take take somebody's head off um, you know they know people are going to be flopping a little bit more so some of those self you know self enforced turnovers he can he can cut down on those but I think you know there's no reason he should be taking four shots a game um, I think he needs to do a better job UNC needs to do a better job working to get him in positions, uh, you know, one to two could be the spin of the baseline right-hand hook, as long as he's not fading away. He does really well in space when he catches it, uh, say from 17 feet and can drive right, spin left. Um, he didn't look that fluid when he did it against UConn, but I think that was more of the position of the defender. You know, he does have a very strong left hand. So I would like to see him use that a little bit more, but just giving the ball, making him, letting him make quick decisions. And if not, then you got to move it quickly instead of backing it out, dribble, dribble. And then, you know, here comes the turnover, fast break. The other thing, you know, you did hit. Stay, stay there for a second, Sean. I'm sorry, I've stepped on you twice. My bad. Dude. Uh, all good. Um, uh, stay there for a second. Because I think, again, think about last year. He didn't have anybody that was reliable that he could reverse to. And oftentimes, North Carolina's movement wasn't such that would allow him a, a, a good a good pass out or another option once he got a double team. I will say I've at least seen him recognize double teams when they're coming this year, which I think is again another another evolution in his growth. But I, I agree with what you're what you're getting at. I mean the only the only other thing with him, um, you know, I don't mind if he takes one, you know, face up jumper a game. He he did hit uh, you know, you went back to the tournament run and he hit two of those uh, across those uh, across those games, so it's not something you want him just settling for, or maybe taking a little off balance like he did against Villanova. But let him face up, and and you know that way he has a little more little more space. So I don't think you need him as the primary scorer. You have R.J. Davis for that, and ideally Cormac and, and Ingram filling in. But you do need, um, I think, to make him want to rebound the ball more offensively and defensively, and you can do that by I think getting him some some better better looks, um, and then. Elliot Cadeau, 
I know we had talked about him kind of each game. You see him getting better, but really against that top competition, he's he's struggled against against the size. Um, he only took two shots against Kentucky. I think teams he didn't take it. He hasn't taken a three pointer. So teams know what you know. Hey, this is a great passer, but let's just play off him a little bit. So would love to see him uh, look for a pull up jumper just to get the defense off balance a little bit more, um, as well as. Once again, just trying to get the ball in transition and and make things happen. So I think with Oklahoma, as Cheryl mentioned, they're they're tough, they're physical, and I think his quickness can help create easier shots uh, for the team in this game. So his um, his ability to penetrate and take care of the ball is going to be really important against Oklahoma. All right, fellas, anything else y'all want to jump in on before we get out of here? No, from Cheryl. No, from Sean. Well, listen, I appreciate you guys being here. Shout out to everybody who's been in the chat with us, all you guys that have been dropping up some good comments. Um, it's good to see. Uh, I think, uh, I think you know, we'll try to do this live when we can. Uh, usually just, as you know, we're recording with some of us on the right coast of the United States, some of us on the left coast of the United States, and that time difference, uh, knowing that we all have kids, is, is tough to do sometimes. So we'll try to do these live when we're able, but if, if we don't, we hope you're enjoying uh, the usual recorded versions as well. Uh, but we will not have a live show uh, next week, and we will probably not have a recorded show next week because of the holidays. We'll we'll see what we can muster up and let you guys know. But uh, appreciate everybody being here. Uh, shout out to Johnny T-shirt for sponsoring us, to our friends at Congruity uh, for sponsoring our Two Cents segment of the show, and for Sean Moran and Cheryl McMillan. If we don't talk to you again, I hope everybody has a great holiday. I uh, hope you are surrounded by love and happiness and, and things that you like, and hope everybody just gets a chance to. To enjoy some stuff uh, and again if uh if you want to remember uh, eric montross and want to honor uh, honor his legacy a little bit then go out and do something for somebody else tomorrow um make this place that we live in a better place than it was when we got here uh and i think that would probably be a, a great tribute and a great uh, great justice towards the legacy that eric leaves behind thanks for being here until next time this has been the coast to coast podcast i'm joey powell on insidecarolina.com we'll talk to you soon It only takes two minutes of sheer horror. A new Paramount Plus original docuseries. We were dealing with a serial killer preying on elderly women. A cold-blooded killer hidden in plain sight. He's suffocating people with a pillows. Leaving corpses all over Texas. How did it happen? I was responsible for her. The guilt is immeasurable. They covered it up. Pillowcase Murders, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus.